0: Church sidebar, and so we will be coming back to that periodically over the next year, Trey and I both. Um, But now, since we are where we are in some of the points, it's good to continue in Paul's writing to Timothy, thus, by design, Paul's writing to the elders of the church. I want to re emphasize a couple of things just generally. I want to talk about why I preach. Why I preach. And this could be an hour of opining, but I'll keep it to a minute. I preach because I cannot do it, cannot not do it. I preach because I have no other thing that drives me. I have a lot of things that can drive me, but they drive me to a wall, and that wall is preaching. But I preach because it is the call of God as an imperative, the call of God as an inescapable burden. But I also need you to understand that preaching and teaching, as I said last week, are, are synonymous. Preaching, though it may be public, it is really for the church. It's for the saints. Doing the work of an evangelist includes reminding us as the body of Christ, the gospel, the good story of Christ. The reality that God will and has effectually justified in the death of Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sins, his people, and in time he will give them faith to believe it. This is beautiful and sovereign. And I preach that. The cross, what Paul would say, I only preach the cross and Him crucified. Lest I preach anything else and waste my life, that's what I want. There's so many words to say, there's so many things that we must teach, but that is the central message and the call of the true gospel believer. The call to preach is the call of the true gospel elder. But preaching and teaching also includes the full counsel of God's word. And as we've seen and I've said already probably 15 times since we've been in Timothy. I don't even know what week this is if we were to talk about how many sermons we've already done. But there is a very clear distinction in scripture that the faith, as we'll see this morning, is absolutely the the teaching. The word doctrine means teachings. Okay, So the teachings about who Christ is... And what he accomplished for his people in redemption. Which is the revelation and the culmination. The reality, the end time reality of what God promised Adam and Eve. That through the seed of the woman, his seed. His anointed one. That he would send. You notice that. God did not use marital relations to bring about Jesus Christ. The one that he would send into the world to crush the head of the serpent. That means to destroy sin, to destroy death, to destroy the chaos of rebellion and unbelief. This is the gospel of free and sovereign grace. It is not about what we do to respond to the gospel or how we can argue to make people believe the gospel. It is about what God has done and finished is the gospel and then we proclaim it through preaching. And then as the church, the second part of this distinction is that we learn to live according to the gospel of grace together. If we deny either of those two instructions, we deny the faith, as I'll show you this morning. We deny the faith. Do not listen to the people who say, well, I've got my gospel right, but I refuse this, that, this, and I'm not doing this, and I'm not going to obey that, and I'm not going to submit to this person. Sorry, it doesn't work. And I have several dogmatic statements today that some people may internalize. I want to be sensitive to that. I pray none of you will internalize it. I don't know of anybody who will. I don't have a name in my head, but I know that just by the nature of some comments that I've received over the last few months, that that some of us internalize certain things because, as the shoe fits, you see what I'm saying? And some of the worst compliments I've ever had in preaching is at the end of the service. Oh, pastor, you stomped my foot good today. Well, I wasn't trying to stomp your feet. That's not a compliment for me. I'm trying to increase your joy. If God the Spirit stomps your feet through some dogmatic assertion that I make, let it be. Don't blame me for it. (laughs) Because I'm not sitting here all week going, how can I get this across? Yes. I mean, I'm a fighter with my fists as a hobby. But I'm not a fighter with my mouth to the church. I don't fight on social media with the gospel and with the word of God. We proclaim God fights. So. I don't have to worry about that. So why I preach is to teach and remind the church of the gospel, is to do the work of evangelism in my life and in your life and in the life of the community around me so that they may hear the gospel. But on the Lord's Day, the other part of why I preach as we intersperse gospel reminders throughout the text is that we learn to live gospel lives. Now, there's a lot of people who are like, amen, it's time to live gospel lives. But what they think I'm saying is to put burdens on people to take away their joy, to take away their pleasures, to promote asceticism, to promote Gnosticism, to promote all sorts of other isms, sisms, and kisms, and, and destroy the very fabric of the blessings of life that God has given us with each other. And I know most of us can say, oh, I remember a time when I was there. Or some of us may say this morning, you know what, I'm there right now. I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. You know the old joke in middle school where the guy would be bragging about how he's such a godly person and he doesn't, you know, do this and he doesn't do that and he doesn't smoke and he doesn't dance and he doesn't date women. And then he goes, oh gosh, I left my cigarettes in the bar What you know? And it's sort of a joke, it's a terrible punchline. But that's the hypocrisy. We, we may have all sorts of things that we think are good and profitable in the context of what we don't do. But the example of that in the Bible is what? The one that says, I don't do all these things. And Jesus says that that man was not justified. That man was condemned. But the man who said, I am a sinner, satisfy your wrath for me. That's what he says. Propitiate for me. Oh, a sinner, oh God, that man is the justified man because that's what the language of someone who has been given grace sounds like. Not, you need to get your life together like mine. No true spiritually led believer. Now, that doesn't mean believers don't say that, but when we're not led by the Spirit, we're led by what? By the flesh. So I preach for myself. To make sure that my journey in the faith is sound and it's not. So I have a lot of work to do during the week. A lot of work. I have a lot of work to do Saturday. Just to get my heart right sometimes. Just to find the ability to pray. You ever been there? You know when things are perfect, we sort of pray on a whim. We pray at breakfast. We pray at lunch. We pray in the car. We pray everything's great. Oh, Lord, it's good. Oh, thank you. You This is good. All right. Amen. But when our emotions, when our mind, when our bodies, when relationships, when external things, when rejection comes, whatever it might be, we can find it so difficult to pray that our prayers or God, help me, I cannot pray. And sometimes, I say it could be a coin toss. I don't know how often because I don't keep a journal of that how often that there is always something that's going to destroy me emotionally or mentally or have the potential for that destruction. Saturday. Or Sunday morning. Why? Because that is what the enemy does. So I preach because I know that the teaching for myself and the teaching for you, the church, is not just my calling, but is my blessing. Because if I were not called to this work, I would not be in the Word. And that is one reason that I knew that I was called to this work is because I couldn't stay out of the Word. Getting reprimanded at work, getting reprimanded at school, getting reprimanded everywhere that I've been. You can't tuck your Bible around here. It's a bad image. It's just one little part. So my journey in the Bible... And then our journey together in the scripture, I preach for that reason. I teach for that reason. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul begins to instruct Timothy in these things. He's already said that the church is the beauty of Christ, the the portrayal of the gospel. The gospel, excuse me. That we are the buttress of the truth. And that Jesus, as he was revealed as he served as he died as he rose from the dead as he ascended as he gave the commission to the apostles now we as the church continue that image that is the glory of god to display who he is and so we do what we do not because it's what we're supposed to do which is a good enough reason but we do what we do it's because it's what is most beneficial to us god's promises are perfect and always it is so that's what amen means armen is the greek there It means it is finished, it is done, it is so, it is true. That's why we see the variation sometimes in the Scripture where Jesus would say, Amen, Amen, I'm telling you. It is true, it is true. I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth. It is so, it is so. Verily, verily, if you've got an older Bible. And Paul is now saying, That there are things that are taking place in the church, he begins to explain some of the stuff that he's already done in his introduction. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the words, read along with me. Now, right now, today, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made perfect, it is set apart, it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. I want to read verse 6 and verse 7 but I won't talk about them today. If you put these things before the brothers, dear Elder Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have obeyed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That, along with James 3.1, is some of the hardest words for a man like me to stomach. Because, oh, my goodness, what have I trained myself to do in this world? I've trained myself to learn language. I've trained myself to memorize ideas. I have trained myself to argue logically. I have trained myself in histories unmeasurably. I've trained myself in music and 11 different instruments, five different genres. I've trained myself in three fighting styles trained myself in three different areas of photography. And the list goes on. Hobbies and interests and everything. And it's just like, it's so funny, because, oh, I haven't done this in a while. Let me revisit it, and the next thing you know, I'm all back in it. Is there anything wrong with those things? No, because Paul will say there's some training bodily that's good, fitness, health, nutrition. These things are important, but they're not ultimate. None of our hobbies and interests are ultimate, but yet God uses all of them for joy and all of them as a way of connecting with other people in the world that we might have gospel intimacy outside the assembly, that the assembly is the instruction house and the worship time for us to be able to go into the world now and live together. But what we find is that we spend most of our time training ourselves to defend the faith, like I talked about last week, in a manner that's unbiblical at the cost of what we are told to do. I have no example that comes that would sound reasonable. But here, there is a mess in Ephesus. And the primary reality is that There are people who are teaching, who are seen as teachers by other people, so I would say there are probably other elders or elders in training who are teaching nonsense and wrong things about Christ, the gospel, and most importantly, they're teaching people to affect their lives accordingly. It's one thing to think about something cognitively or rationally or argumentatively. It's another thing when we make assertions and we stand on positions of those thoughts that change the very way we relate to the world around us. That's good but it can be dangerous and when unqualified teachers introduce unbiblical ideas that create unnecessary behaviors in the name of spirituality, that is a cult mindset and it could be you got to have these words. you got to have this type of hand washing. you got to, and listen, don't we want that? <clears throat> don't we want the list? Don't we want, instead of maps in the back, we don't care what the maps looked like back then. Well, wouldn't we rather just have a list of all the things of how we should do everything? Don't we want the simple explanation? Men, comb your hair this way. Women, comb your hair this way. Put on the shoes like this, don't wear this color, don't wear that color. Do this, but that's not the point. The Bible is not given instruction for that purpose. The Bible, when it talks about those things, oftentimes are not prescriptive in its, in its, uh, applica- in its, well, in the details, it's prescriptive in its application. Generally, theologically. Remember that the beautiful church, as I've always already said this morning, reflects the nature and the glory of her Savior in what she believes and what we believe as true concerning Him, and then how we behave for the sake of Him. So now Paul is telling Timothy what's really upset him is not necessarily the teaching that can be overcome very clearly and corrected by the written word. Uh, that's not found in the Bible and you are making a mountain out of a sentence that's out of context that's nonsense, be quiet yes sir, I'll obey that in the name of the the son but when people start changing their behavior it's a whole different story, isn't it? when people stop coming to church because of their conscience it's a whole different thing, isn't it? when people stop loving one another physically intimately ministerially. I mean, think about that for a second. What if you just decided tomorrow never to feed your children again because they made you mad? I bet they'd fall in line after about three days or start stealing food. Or you're just upset with the government and you're just not going to pay your taxes. <laughs> okay. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do in our behavior because of our belief system. But there's always, there's always a payout there's always a cost and the cost of false teaching is always contrived and controlled behavior in the church that devastates intimacy it destroys ministry some of the context of what we dealt with in the pandemic it's going to be two weeks It's going to be two weeks two weeks two weeks two weeks it's like i mean it's like the pandemic was a a plumber coming to the house just two years later hasn't made it but it's always going to be two weeks And then our beliefs in that begin to affect our ability to be intimate as a people. Not only in churches and congregations, but in workplaces and in relationships and families. And so what we believe affects how we act. And how we act cannot be contrary to what's instructed simply in the Bible. Simply. It just cannot be. And I'm talking to believers who are born of the Spirit who have been given the gift of faith to believe not in just the gospel but also the totality of God's sufficient word to teach us everything we need for life and godliness. Now the Spirit is saying, let's go through this one phrase at a time. Now the Spirit is saying, Paul is a master because of the Spirit. He's a smart man too but because of God the spirit leading his mind to these words they are without contradiction and they are so perfect in their arguments that it causes us if we are careful readers and slow causes us to see what Paul is saying now okay right now in the reading of Timothy Paul is saying the spirit is saying right now. What does that mean? That means as I write this sentence, the Spirit of God is telling you this. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful and is profitable. I mean, think about that for a second. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness that the man of God, that the elder of God may be complete. He has everything he needs. He may be equipped. He needs no other tools for every good work that he's called to. Oh, how often does my unbelief take me to sidebars when the word of God is plenty? Trey and I had a conversation Thursday, and in interacting with Trey and, and investing in his wisdom as he's becoming an elder soon, it's interesting because he made mention of some of my sidebars. He said, sometimes your sidebars just like way out there. I've always been that way. But it's funny because in the last four or five weeks, some of you have come to me and said, oh, Pastor, I like what you said, boom, and it had nothing to do with the sermon. It was just one of those sidebars, a five-second soundbite. Became the emphasis of the preaching. So it had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I don't like Taco Bell either, Pastor. Good sermon. (laughs) We can't escape it. It's what we do as human beings. It's part of our personalities that bleed over into our lives and every point of every relationship that we have. But Paul is saying that the scripture is that what he's writing right here is what the Spirit is saying. Now, Paul was not, he was not one of these guys that that just spoke crazily about what God has told me. The apostles were spoken to by God the Spirit. We are, too, in the context of illumination, but not revelation. What's the difference? Illumination is the lights come on when we're reading that which is revealed. Revelation is the written word of the apostles. Illumination is as we're reading it with our language and our mind, with our voicing, A light goes on and goes, hey, I understand this. I see this. I can apply this. I grasp this. Wow, I believe this. Awesome. That's illumination. The Spirit of God speaks to us through the writing and illuminates to us His purposes and His instruction and His power because we have been born as His people, born again. So the Spirit is saying. The Spirit is saying. Like in Acts 20, Paul talks about how the Spirit told him what? I think that's where it is that he didn't know what was going to happen, but he did know that because the Spirit of God had told him he was going to suffer and be imprisoned again. Now, that's not something I want to wake up to. Good morning, Lord. Good morning, James. You're going to jail. (laughs) I'd be like Jonah. I'd be on the first boat to Mexico. Oh, a Mexican jail. Ah, didn't realize that. How dumb am I? Well, if that's where you want to be in jail, go ahead, son. Wherever you are, my word stands. I want you back in Florida, I'll swallow you up and bring you. We can't escape that which God is saying. You can't escape what the Scripture is saying, what the Spirit is saying. Timothy, you can't escape it. The Spirit is saying right now that in later times, and you know what that actually means? Right now, later times are... I have to be careful with my language because if I use words that mean what I'm saying, people take them incorrectly. But in the dispensation, in the time period of Christ and the church, which is where we have been living since the incarnation. um, That's the later times. This is the last epoch of human history until glorification of the world and the saints. He's saying right now, in these later times, some, not all, some. He didn't even say many. We're not going to build an entire theological history or possibility of these words. But he's saying some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. See, Paul now is dealing with apostasy. And he uses that phrase from the faith in an objective sense. The faith, what it, is in, what it entails. A lot of times when we hear the faith, we only think about theological positions. Paul doesn't have that in mind when he uses that. We went to Jude last week. We understand that it is, in, it is a part of it, what theological positions. Theological positions as written in the full context of any letter in the New Testament. And only in the New Testament. Beloved, we are New Testament preachers the old testament is a shadow and a mystery and the new testament shows us what it means so as i've said for almost 20 years i don't know i can't say the whole time i've been in ministry so let's just say for the last two decades i know that i've been saying this is that apostolic authority trumps old testament theology what about nehemiah what about okay what about paul What does Jesus say, and what does Paul say, and John say, and Matthew say, and James say, and Peter say about what is written in Nehemiah? It's not two different things to learn. It's not an application of rebuilding the walls, miracle. No. It's about Christ. How do we know? Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament. The apostles are clearly taught of God. Some will depart the faith. This is the New Testament teaching concerning the work and the person of the Son of God and His instruction to them. Some means that those who are part of us. Paul is not talking about people over in another town. Paul is not talking about the rumor on Sandbook Sand Book that everybody's passing around. So stupid. That everybody's passing around about, you know, this knucklehead down the road that's teaching something wrong at the local pub, or at the local cult or some world religion center. Paul's talking about people who are in the congregations of Ephesus who have been embraced, who have been led to be, who have been, who have been taught to be leaders, who are teaching, have a platform, a position where people are listening to what they say. They, some of these, some of us if you will, but he doesn't use us because us is always intimate, right? Some that seem to be a part of us will depart from the faith to those who are part of the local church. Those not part of the local church are not our concern nor our business. Those not part of our local church are not our primary concern, nor our business. They will depart. That means that they once claimed to hold to the truth, but they leave it. To depart, if I depart the grocery store, it's not when I leave my house. It's when I leave the grocery store. So departing the faith means having once said that they believed the faith. A true believer can consider this. A few things you need to have in mind. A true believer can consider this. A true believer can consider false doctrine. A true believer can consider a well-made argument. I've seen it my whole life. Paul said, a a, a brother sent me some um, Galatians 4.20 where Paul talks about being perplexed by these people. (laughs) He's just baffled. He's, he's like banging his head going, what is going on? And I responded to this guy. I said, that's my life every single day. I'm always perplexed by somebody who has walked so far to just walk away to some oddity. And we call them back, and they're like, nah, I'm done with that. Lie, contextual, entire book of Romans. I got this new thing. Okay. It's like knowing the closing line of Soyant Green and Keep On Eating. <laughs> it's ridiculous. That movie horrified me. I think I was 11 when I watched it. A true believer can be led astray into false doctrine, false teaching. It's easy. How? By well-meaning teachers? By dummies like me who opine too much rather than stick to the text? by silly observation, by mental brain work, by Googling too much. <laughs> There's, that's a really oxymoronic now that I think about that. A true believer can agree with error. Someone told me a couple of years ago that a true spirit-filled believer will automatically and always see an error. That's not true if they haven't studied it. We're not apostles. We're not walking around with divine knowledge and a divine eye of knowing everything that comes through. And just because we hear language, you know, we speak a redneck English around here. We're bubblicious when it comes to talking. And I don't even know what that means. It just sounded funny. And so when someone uses a word that I may really understand well... That person may not even know what they're talking about. So it doesn't hurt my feelings to ask questions, and it doesn't hurt my feelings to get the wrong answers from somebody, because I know what sovereignty is. And I know that God is saying, some will depart the faith. How do we know if someone's departed the faith? Well, an unbeliever can agree with, I mean, a believer can agree with error. A believer, though, will never remain in error. Now, see, here comes the real divine prophets Well, because you said that yesterday, you were not born of God until today, until you repented of that word. But I didn't even know the word existed until the day before. I had no idea the gospel was a theological thesaurus we had to memorize. I had no idea that the litmus test of the efficacy of the death of Jesus was when he stood there and said, It is finished. There was like a medical, uh, 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 like the end of a medicine commercial. And the following qualifications are a... You must know this and this and this and this and all this. But justification. No. No. And forget those people who insist on those things. Please, let them go. It's like a rabid dog that's trying to get off the leash. Let it go. Don't try to hold that. And people who are stuck in the cult lot mentality... Of fighting and fighting and fighting. They have no peace. Beloved, let us not fight in ourselves. Some people, what's the point I'm making? Some people will depart. And we have to be okay in God's sovereignty. But those who are our brothers and sisters, they will not remain entangled in error in their understanding Because the Bible, through the leadership of patient, kind, gentle, and human elders, will bring them back to the truth. That's a very interesting proposition. I can see where you come from. And listeners can see where people come from. And they can agree that that's an incredible idea. However, not, yeah, but. However, the Bible teaches this. Let's talk about the differences and the distinctions. See, that's how you deal with distinctions. And when somebody stomps their foot on their distinctions and then throws a fit, you know what? Now we're going to correct not just what you're saying. Now we're going to correct your behavior. You're pitching a fit in the grocery store because you want this cookie. See, I'm the type of guy that will just buy the cookie and throw it away or eat it myself in front of the kids. Okay, I'll get the cookie, get out of the car, (laughs) That's petty, but it works if you want your children to hate you. (laughs) Daddy ate my cookie when I was five. I need therapy. That's trauma. See that sidebar? But those who depart deny the gospel ultimately. They, They end up denying the gospel in part. Just because people diverge in the journey doesn't mean that they're apostate. Apostate meaning leaving the faith. If something you have never considered is required in order for God to grant faith in him, then that thing that you have not considered is the power of God, not God. If you think you cannot, if you don't think God can regenerate your three-year-old through the hearing of the word of God, as he wishes, because they can't cognitively apprehend, a theological system that we have developed out of the manifold writing in the New Testament, then I don't know any other thing to tell you is that there's never, now, no sacrifice for your sins. You see? So don't be upset when you come to discover, oh my gosh, I have believed some crazy stuff, or look at how I'm living. I am telling my children they cannot eat bread because bread is of the devil. I'm not saying bread's not of the devil, but I'm praying over it, and I'm eating it. It's not the purpose of this. And they're leaving the faith, the revelation of the New Testament teaching concerning the person, the work of Christ. The totality of information required to be called a believer as at least one teaching, right? I mean, what does it require? What, how much gospel stuff do you need to know in order to... Be counted as born again. I'm going to tell you right now, um, there's not a person that I know alive today who can even give me every implication of what it means to be justified. There's not a person alive today that I know in real life. Now, there may be somebody alive that I don't know, so I'm prefacing that. You see, that I know personally who can expressly show the gospel in its entirety in one letter or in one area of a letter. Every gospel truth that's found in the New Testament is not found in one place. It's found all over and the letters to the Romans and the letters to the Ephesians and the letters to the Corinthians, these were not written evangelistically in any sense. These were written correctively and to be encouragement to the saints who had already learned the gospel that was preached from the Old Testament prophets to the revelation of Christ who came into the world and died and rose from the dead. Why did he do that? That's why I believe having a series on what Faith is, is important. The totality of teaching that resides in the New Testament is immeasurable, beloved. The faith, the gospel, the faith, consists of many things. And no teachings of the faith are going to be found in one place in Scripture. Familiarity with the New Testament writings... Over and over and over and over again is required to rightly handle the, the scripture and to rightly build a theology of what the gospel is. But the root of the gospel is the story of God promising redemption through his son and everything that entails. That everything that entails is a, is a passage, uh, excuse me, is a is an experience and a journey as the local church as we continue to grow and read. That's why I emphasize over and over again about reading the Scripture. And last week I overemphasized in a jesting way that the reader's Bible is God's divine revelation to the church, but it's not. Okay. Just listening back to my sermon, I'm going, that's way over the top. Any Scripture that you want to read, I just like to play jokes on the 17-pound study Bibles. Read the Bible, whatever whatever edition you have. Just read it. Read it. So leaving the faith is not being found in error. That leaves room for correction. You're not out of the faith, now in the faith. Oh, you weren't really in the faith because you're out of the faith again. That's nonsense. That's schizophrenia, and it's not okay. That's discipleship. Those who insist on knowing the mind and the heart of God concerning His people because of their fleshly apprehensions or purities, according to Paul, are what? He says that they... Left the faith, depart the faith by devoting themselves, and I'm talking about that in a second, to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Verse 2 through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the ones who insist on these things are propagating lies, and those who propagate lies are liars. And they do not know the truth because they do not love their brothers and sisters. This is what John is clear on in his first epistle. Jesus says the very same thing. When I find myself triggered and dogmatically irritated, then I know that I'm immature. And I know that I'm sitting in a position of unbelief. Have I been there? Oh, more times than I ever want to count. And if I did count, I'd lie and say I didn't. How many times have you ever been upset? A few times. That's like somebody saying, you got a box of ammo? You got any ammo? I got a box or two. Have you ever had any donuts? One or two. I don't want to admit that I'm a freak. I don't want to admit that I'm a really dumb, irritating, paranoid guy. But I stand on this dogmatically. that those who continue to insist on these things, on knowing the hearts and minds of God, the heart and mind of God, according to what his people are and are not able to misunderstand, are liars. And I stand on this and I entreat anyone to consider another way. I really do. In context, in the simple instruction, first and foremost, of living together as the church, then if what you say and what you think you should do doesn't contradict that, then it can be considered. If it contradicts that, then we're not even going to have a conversation. If a person is filled with the Spirit of God, they will hear the voice of Christ. They will hear the New Testament teaching. They will listen to Paul, and they will listen to the elders who give reasonable instruction and application of Paul's writing. I mean, reasonable instruction. Let's just say I tell you, you can't wear Nikes anymore. You go, Pfft, whatever. That's ridiculous. No matter what, that's unbiblical. But if I tell you to stop putting your Nikes in the rear end of your neighbor because it's causing strife, then I can tell you to take the Nikes off. You see what I'm saying? The person filled with the Spirit will hear the voice of Jesus when we teach them, no matter matter the instruction. Those who refuse the instruction are to be avoided by formal discipline of the body, not personal disconnection. James Tippins doesn't have a right to discipline anybody out of his life. The church has to be in agreement On these things. And when we treat someone as an unbeliever, had a conversation about this with a brother this week, it should be better understood as one who denies the faith because of the way they live, the way they sin, or what they believe. We should treat that person as an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of the cross because of how they're doing. Therefore, the relationship we have with those who abandon the faith through the process of church discipline is one of avoidance and removal of all intimacy and in ministry. We have no obligation until they return in sorrow and seek unity in Christ. We hear, them, we hear the Scripture say, treat them as an unbeliever, and they have no place for us. They have no place for them at our table. It's not talking about, we're not to impose, we've got to share the gospel, we're not to impose that. We've got to love our neighbor. No, this person is apostate, until they come back repenting, we have no obligation to them. Why? Because that is where we will spend our time. We will spend our time with people who want to constantly prove themselves correct and prove themselves a victim rather than spend our time with people who are unified in the faith and the gospel. It's like we have a wayward child, and all we do is cater to the wayward child. We spend all of our money on the wayward child. We come in every day. All we do is feed and send, send uneaten food to the wayward child, and everybody else in the household is starving. Beloved, I've been guilty of that same thing. But it says the faith. They will depart from the faith. And we preached and taught about the faith so much, it would be absurd to associate any idea that this church or its leaders have not defined the gospel clearly. When I'm talking about a specific point and getting very myopic on a particular detail, like if I do an essay on mitochondria, am I, am, I, am I effectively dismissing any other part of the structure? And for those of you who go, what is he talking about? Great. It doesn't matter. If I deal with the idea or I sit there and talk about the observation of time, and I deal with some aspect of relativity, Am I skipping the fact that we live in this area, in this era? Am I I ignoring what light is doing? No, I'm just focusing on a specific detail. When I talk about faith and when I talk about a specific detail of faith, which I could probably, I think I've got 17 different aspects of faith and what it is and what it does and how it works. So the series is getting bigger. I'm going to try to break it down. It doesn't mean we're ignoring something. It would be absurd to say, that we as a church or as elders have not been clear about what the gospel is. And we won't answer those claims either. And you shouldn't answer those claims. Paul wasn't interested in the claims of the gospel with these false teachers. He was interested in them being submissive to the instruction and the commands given to them by him, thus the Spirit of God. And then when everybody's unified in the gospel, in the same seat. The teaching of Scripture does its work. I can't tell you the number of nights that I've been out through the years. Meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings. And meetings were always driven to the principal, to the person who had the biggest problem. The person who had to get the solution right then. And everybody else is dragged along. When really the meeting that God calls for for resolving all issues is this one. Now, there's time for counsel, there's time for intimate settings to discuss things that are personal in your life. Absolutely. With each other, with me, with other leaders, with other brothers and sisters. But when it comes to the church at large, think, man, this is it. We can deal with it right here. We submit to the New Testament scriptures as God's final revelation, superior to the Old Testament revelation. But as God's final revelation on matters of the church. And we do not confuse historical theology as revelatory to the church in any sense whatsoever. It doesn't matter. I love to learn what other people look at and how they see certain things concerning the scripture. But it is anthropological for me. It is not spiritual. I love it because nobody's going to change my mind because I have this and I've got 100 copies of this in four languages and some that I just worship because they're so old. I've got my great-great-great-grandfather's Bible, his daddy, his mama, my great-grandparents. It's just, I look at them and go, look at that. My house sets on fire. I'll probably grab that, leave my money. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I forgot the money. Not that I have any, but there it is. So, if anyone around you continues to insist on word usage or systematized outlines that are required for salvation, know that is a Pelagian doctrine. What is Pelagian? It means of the sea, but it's the nickname that the guy had Pelagius. Who basically thought that you know men were in, bestowed some type of spiritual grace to where they then could figure all this stuff out on their own, and they could come to conclusions that could establish their own righteousness and works and obedience and faith and all this other kind of stuff. And we we call a lot of that Arminianism today, which is another historical theological position. But it's really all the same thing. It's about Lucifer standing there, looking at himself, going, you know what, I've come up with a really, really good idea. The fact that I'm as beautiful as God is, not realizing he was a reflection of his creator. But he was not, in essence, his creator. He did not share the same substance, he just looked like it. Like the church, we're not God, we're not Christ, but we are the body of Christ. We reflect Him, but we're not Him. How dare us? And Lucifer thought in his mind, I should stand up there. I should share the glory. Ultimately, we know what he really wanted because everybody else around him was going, Dude, do you see how good you look? God's getting a little old. He'd be around forever. You could be a better face for heaven. Now, I'm making jokes. But in essence, that's exactly what happened. God threw him out in judgment. And then in the temple of the garden where God created his people and set them with the promise of eternal life, his intention was that there, this Lucifer would come in and then offer something incredible offer something internal. If you do this, if you have this, if you understand this, if you go here, oh, God's hiding something from you. Oh, it's never changed. It's never changed. And that's what it means to first leave the faith. When we leave the context, we leave the context of the Word of God into pretext, and we start to decide in our minds other ideas. We we live on the wave of inference rather than the depths of solidarity. We leave the faith. We're not apostate until we abandon it. Paul's saying these apostates have left the faith not because they've denied certain portions of an essential teaching or any essential portion of redemption revelation, but because they insist on other ideas and philosophies in addition to the grace alone of God that is the effectual hope of redemption in Christ. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through which, in sincerity of liars, the teachers who propagated it, whose consciences are seared. And then verse 3 talks about what, that, what they're doing. So let's talk about devoting themselves. What does it mean to devote themselves? What in the world? Well, when you hear about devoting themselves in the context of Scripture, what comes to mind? Acts 2, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Every day, the breaking of bread and to prayer and to fellowship. And then we see this de- deceitful spirits. They devoted themselves to deceitful spirits. What does it mean to be devoted? That means it is their drive. Any platform they have, they they want to deal with this, they want to talk about this, and they'll say, oh, it's not that essential. Right? No, it's about conscience. Oh, it's just an issue. It's just, just my personal ideas. But yet, in their heart, they want to, and sometimes they're not aware of it. Why? Because their consciences are seared. I have little feeling in my hands when it comes to pain, because I have punched and fought and done so much in my hands, they're desensitized. My nose, not desensitized. (laughs) So we can become desensitized. That's what it means to have a seared conscience. We start thinking about our thinking more than we are exposing ourselves to the whole of Scripture to the point that we're not able to realize that we're no longer listening to the Spirit of Christ through the Bible, but we are enveloping the Bible into our own ideas. Did God really say you would die? devoting themselves to this as their constant drive. They're not maniacal. We're not talking about cults and wicked worldview leaders. We're talking about saints in the body of Christ who have left the faith because of this practice. Deceitful spirits are in contrast to the Spirit of God that is now saying. You see what Paul's doing here? He's brilliant. God is brilliant. errant. The Spirit says that this is not me. The Spirit says that this practice is not me. The Spirit says, and we don't have to go here to figure out what he's talking about. We see it, Galatians. We see what the Spirit does. We see what the Spirit is, who he is in in Romans chapter 8. We see in all the teaching of Ephesians and other places. We see the Spirit of God doing things, and the fruit of the Spirit of God is evident. So anything that is not of the Spirit of God evidently is not of the Spirit of God. Therefore, it is of the Spirit of the enemy, which we call according to the words used by Paul. And by Jesus, we call it demonic. AKA of the devil, aka satanic. And man, is that not a t shirt from fundamentalism? That's of the devil. Amen. I mean, you know, that's usually all you had to say. And back in the 40s and 50s, electricity is of the devil. Amen. Not going to have it in my church. Pianos of the devil. I mean, you didn't even have to argue. You just had to say it. Let's get rid of the piano. Uncovered heads and ladies of the devil. Well, here's some napkins. Cover your heads. I mean, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is clearly exegeting not just even what would be affirmed in the Old Testament, but what is affirmed in the gospel narratives of the New Testament very clearly that when something is not of the spiritual fruit of God the Spirit, it is of the spiritual fruit of demons. And that doesn't, it's not an opportunity for us to fear. There is no fear. These things have no, these beings have no power over us. I don't have to name it, claim it, grab it, bab it, call it, throw it, burn it, live it. I don't have to do anything. I just know that my Savior crushed their heads. In Colossae, spiritual philosophy. I mean, I've had this verse used against me just in my thinking before. There are people who are adopting, devoting themselves to idea and interest of demons that added to the redemptive work of Christ. Galatia, the same thing. Conditions, philosophies, good arguments, debates. It is demonic not to be at peace with God's gospel, with God's power, with God's purposes, and in the midst of God's people, even when somebody comes along with some knuckleheaded idea and behavior. Because correction is a clear way of testing their ears. It is fleshly when we hold to these things. It is in contrast to being devoted to the true spirit and his teaching to the apostles. John said the same thing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. He says, we are what? From God. We, the apostles. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now, what if I said that about myself? If you truly have the spirit of God, you'll listen to what i got to say. Y'all better jump up and call foul or wait for the punchline. But I can say, if you really have the Spirit of God, you'll listen to what Paul is saying. And you'll read it for yourself in context so that God may teach you. Don't take my word for it. Is that not been my mantra? That's how I preach. Whoever listens to us... Knows God. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error for those who do not listen to the teaching that we wrote down. There's no exceptions to this. Many people don't like me to say demonic. When they come to me all fritzed up and triggered and upset and almost belligerent, I'm oh like, ah, you know what? That's not of God. I'm basically saying that's of the devil. And the cool thing about that is that it's not all the devil. It's not the devil's fault because the only thing that triggers me is that which my flesh really wants to be triggered with. James talks about that, doesn't he? Temptation, God doesn't tempt me at all. But the enemy tempts me. The demons tempt me. They whisper. Nobody loves you. You work too hard. I can't believe you let somebody tell you like that. Why do you have to suffer this way? (laughs) Yeah, why do I have to suffer this way? Gotcha! It's like an angler. He knows what bait to put on that hook. If you want catfish, mudfish, and all other bottom suckers, just put a napkin on it. They'll eat it. But if you want carp, if you want bass, if you want brent, there's a certain type of look and flare and color and flash that has to happen. Certain types of movement. The enemy knows what to put on the end of the hook, and we bite it because it's what we want. If we got a radio report right now. There's $4 million that has fallen off the bridge at public fishing lake and y'all are the first ones to know about it the authorities say whoever finds it keeps it and there's free cookies in the back of the room the kids are going to be very upset when we drag them kicking and screaming from the cookies <laughs> they don't care about that money in the hole but we do well look at here it's time to go amen <laughs> look what we can do for the lord with that But I'm not going to change what the Bible says. When it says demonic, I'm going to say demonic. When it st- says it, states that other, other spirits that lead and persuade, just like the father of lies in the garden led the thinking of Adam and Eve to go astray against the promises of God, so these same demons continue to work in kind. Nothing has changed. The changes in teaching and ideas always lead then to some actions, to something in the mind or the body that goes against the teaching of grace, sovereign and free, and all unseasoned sheep will be misled at some times, so the overseers must keep watch. Guide, instruct, insist, and correct so that the teaching is paramount, that the care is given. See, these liars seem genuine because their consciences are sealed, so they think they're genuine. They seem as though they're always seeking to honor the Lord and defend the church from error. They always seek to assume and never learn to listen and be submissive. They are misled. And here in Ephesus, they flesh this out by purveying lies that are not mentioned, by the way, except in the application and the behavior. And they don't even know it. Paul says they're to be known as liars because of the outward and inward requirements that are now at stake and explain in verse 3. Let's look at verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, a seared conscience is not affected by the instruction of reconciliation, is it? A seared conscience is not not affected by someone to say, be at peace. Calm down, let's pray. A dear brother just a couple of months ago was telling me about a really just horrible thing going on in their church and some family with another, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, it's just this turmoil. And as pastors, I mean, it causes us to become physically ill. And he's like, so he goes and talks with one of his leadership. And his leadership just looks at him and said, let's just get down here and pray about it. And it made me feel that big because as he was telling me the story, I'm like... I mean, you know, let's go. Lock the door, we're going to deal with this. In the name of Jesus, where my sword at? No, let's just pray. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. God is powerful. We don't pray about our relationships. We don't pray about our finances. We don't pray about our problems. Uh, you know, like we should. And we don't pray together enough like we should. And a seared conscience isn't affected by that. Let's just sit down and pray. Yeah, I'm praying, but this isn't enough. Something else has got to be done. Really? Gideon felt like that, too. He's like, Are you kidding me? How many men did I have? I could have tore these people up. And they tore themselves up. A person with a seared conscience will deny the Lord's requirement. By rebuking the ones who are calling for submission and obedience. So the demons offer the ideas. The lying flesh takes it and runs with it and thinks that it's good. But we're not talking about obvious error in every specific situation. These things are sneaky. These things are subtle. And they must be by God's purposes. And in Ephesus, because this teaching was taking place, I believe it was elders among the Ephesians doing this stuff. Starting this stuff. So all this error has come to fruition, and the evidence of those who have left the faith now insist on changings of mind and behavior congruent with their own consciences. We know this because again they refuse the instruction here. Thus they do not believe in the sovereignty of God's word. And there are many things I could talk about: legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Asceticism is denying physical pleasures for the sake of spirituality or purity or holiness. This is nonsense. It's not okay. The Bible doesn't teach that. And one of those instructions is that they forbid marriage. There was a time even in in, in Reformation period, those several hundred years there, where they would teach the church what? You don't have to get married. You know, you're pure if you're not married. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Well... Virginity is not spiritual. Loneliness is not spiritual. Sexual abstinence is not purity in the marriage or singleness or whatever. But yet, all through history, we see that stuff. In fact, Paul would say, Being married keeps a lot of problems at bay and displays a gospel picture of Christ and His church. See, a contrived holiness, a contrived redemption, a contrived regeneration, a contrived gospel is of the devil. Just like being told not to have joy or peace of mind, forbidding marriage and food is not of God. Forbidding what God has made for our pleasure as His people is never evil, but it is evil to teach, to abstain from what is good or spiritual because it causes fear and it causes false holiness and it causes false conscience. He said forsake foods. Don't don't eat foods. God created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So what foods? Well, we see what happened with Peter, don't we? Paul went in there and you're not going to do this, Paul. I mean, I'm not going to do this, Peter. This is wrong. So were the apostles infallible, sinless? No, but when they wrote by the spirit, they were infallible. So we're not to forsake foods that God created. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to be healthy because God did not create the fast food cheeseburger. He created the beef and wheat. How we put it together and consume it is our business. But even then, the greasy spoon guy can be just as spiritually mature as the whole grain guy. Is it wise? Maybe not. But here, we don't abstain from things. What did he tell the Colossians? Stop listening to these demons, to the teaching of demons, that tell you do not touch, do not taste, do not look. We know what is good and profitable, But culture has dictated a lot of things that have created a legalistic attitude that we think that we're superior because we don't partake in certain things or do certain things or wear certain things or watch certain things or read certain things. When that which is clearly taught in Scripture is ignored to the inference of things that are more culturally adept. I mean, what was it back in the day? What was it 100 years ago? Was it temperance? Well, that was longer than that. I mean it was, against the, it was not only against the law, it was against the law, because it was against God to drink alcohol, but yet God's word clearly not only tells us we can drink alcohol, but instructs Paul, Peter uh, Timothy to drink alcohol, in moderation for specific reasons. And, and that is a matter of conscience. because in the same way food is dangerous to our body, so is alcohol if it's done in abundance and in the wrong time and in the wrong place. And we live in a culture where both food and drink. idols and medicine and escape. Though I've never been drunk, I have surely been full. Beyond my ability. Because I just can't taste that. I want to taste it all. You see? But yet it's not a sin to eat. It's not a sin to eat pork. It's not a sin to eat pork. But yet There are certain religions who would say it is. I'm not picking at you. But there are certain religions who would say that it is sinful to eat pork. But if you don't want to eat pork, don't eat pork. But don't say that I'm sinful because I eat pork. It's not a sin to drink milk. You see. Why does it matter? Why is this the issue that that Paul's all upset about? Because it's causing horror and terror and spiritual sidewaysness. I just made a new word up. In the church. And because of that, it is disrupting the gospel life of the body. Now see, who would have ever thought, hear about that church split? Yep, couldn't eat macaroni. Or as I've been told before by a very sweet senior adult in her 90s. I don't call them deviled eggs around here, Sonny. They're angeled eggs. eggs. <laughs> you know, that's fine. I'll call them angeled eggs for you. But I mean, nobody's split a church over that. But we do, we split. We split and we divide. We? And that's the issue. And so then Paul's going to tell Timothy, put these things before the people. Put these things before the people. Teach them how to live and to speak and to act and to love and to reconcile in addition to continually reminding them of the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave His life for them and satisfied God's wrath fully and forever when He died. Once and for all, sanctifying a people for Himself. Read the book of Hebrews. Never to have to pay for any sin again. And nothing else ever will. And that's what faith knows. That Christ has paid it all. His righteousness is mine. His death is mine. His resurrection is mine. And then we learn together all the different things the Bible teaches us about this good news. By the Spirit of God. So in all of that, let's not burden ourselves with things that the Bible doesn't give us the command to burden ourselves with because of a tiny little pretext that we find so important to an echo chambered minority that seems like the world my goodness doesn't it seem like the world when two people talk to you about something well everybody's talking about this Two people? Oh, everybody in that car. Oh, okay, I got you. Everybody in line with you, the other two people in you, all of you, everybody. talking. Everybody's not talking about this. And, beloved, we don't have to give in to these things. Let us not be despised, but to command and teach the things that God's word has told us to do. Because it holds value as we grow in godliness. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your gentleness and your patience. Lord, we pray that we would be called to pray. We pray that we would be driven to your word. And that we would remember each other in our prayers. And I thank you, Lord, for your peace that you give me, even though I may approach this platform many weeks in turmoil. With fear, not the healthy reverence of Handling your word, but Lord, fear of of men. Fear of the unknown. Fear of myself. So that as we grow together in grace, knowing and securing the foundations of the gospel that you have caused us to believe, we work through the differences and the divergence. As they invade us because of your sovereignty. And then you are glorified in our correction. You love us because you love us. And you loved us in the killing of Christ. Which corrected our debt. And then you correct us as your people. As you discipline us gracefully. Because we are your children. you love us in that discipline. So thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving your church. Thank you for loving to help us to grow and to know what it means to live as a Christ follower in freedom, without fear, without loneliness. But they are, we are united in Christ. And that is really the point of life. In His name we pray. Amen.